Greetings, A-poppers and anthropology enthusiasts. I am PhD candidate Shane Skaggs, and you are listening to A Story of Us, a podcast led by the anthropology graduate students at The Ohio State University. This podcast is dedicated to anthropological research and practice, so stay tuned to hear more about our humanity and beyond. You can find all of our previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a glowing review and share this podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues, or give us a shout out on social media. Be sure to follow A Story of Us on Instagram, at A Story of Us OSU, for additional content, to learn more about our events and programs, or to just learn more about anthropology in general, follow the Anthropology Public Outreach Program at Ohio State APOP, or check out our website at u.osu.edu APOP. This is the third episode of our engagement series, where we are focusing on the application of anthropological research. And today I'm joined by our very own Dr. Anna Willow. Dr. Willow is an engaged environmental anthropologist whose research investigates human environment relationships in context of anthropogenic environmental transformation with a focus on how diverse groups of people experience and respond to extractive industrial development. Dr. Willow is the author of the 2012 book, Strong Hearts, Native Lands, the Cultural and Political Landscape of Anishinaabe Anti-Clear-Cutting Activism. She's also the author of the 2018 book, Understanding Extractivism, Culture and Power in Natural Resource Disputes. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Willow. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I'll start off with just a classic question that we like to ask. Uh, what is your definition of anthropology? So I like to think that anthropology is open to multiple definitions. Certainly, literally, we can take it as the study of humanity, or even more literally, as the study of man. Many other things are involved in anthropology. Most broadly, um, and the way that I get most excited about anthropology is I think about our study of and our you know, push for a richer understanding of our human condition and our experience of being human. I really like the idea of multiple definitions. That's great. So something that always excites our listeners is learning how you became an anthropologist. So what is your origin story? That's a great question. I guess I'd have to say that anthropology chose me uh, more than I setting out to choose it. So when I graduated from high school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I was determined to get as far away as I could from the Midwest. And for me, that meant going to art school in San Francisco, California. I attended the San Francisco Art Institute as an interdisciplinary fine arts major for two years. And although I had a lot of passion for producing art and understanding art, I came to the realization that I, I just couldn't take the politics of being in the art world. Once I saw that, I was not very interested in participating. And I also you know, came to realize that it was going to be very hard to maintain integrity and in my passion for art and make a living. I decided to uh, come back to the University of Wisconsin and to get a liberal arts degree. 
I pretty quickly settled on anthropology as a major um, because by that point I had already been doing reading in lots of different fields. I was an avid reader. I was very interested in all kinds of social science and humanities stuff early in my college career. And it, you know, sort of dawned on me that the cultural relativistic perspective the um, celebration of diversity and multiple ways of seeing and being in the world was something that I had just, you know, had, you know, inside of me from my upbringing and, you know, sort of my personality. So once I started taking anthropology courses, I didn't feel like I needed to learn much of a new vocabulary. I didn't need to learn the new way of seeing that we often promote anthropology as. In fact, I realized that that was the way that I'd been thinking about things all along. And then in fact, there was a whole discipline that existed for me, hmm. right? Of course, it's not the way it was set up, but that's very much the way it felt. So I majored in anthropology, focusing on cultural anthropology, and also got a minor in natural resources, environmental studies um, at the University of Wisconsin. When I came out of my undergraduate degree, I was very determined to dedicate my life to making a positive difference in the environmental situation. That's actually something that's still at the center of my life and my career. So at that point, I didn't quite know how I was going to do it. Um, I was very much convinced that understanding and, you know, even transforming human behavior and human relationships to the natural world, that was how I was going to make my contribution. So I actually attended the University of Michigan for a couple of years. I went to their School of Natural Resources and Environment, focusing in environmental behavior. At the University of Michigan, I you know, had this idea in mind that I was going to be an environmental educator. Um, I did work for um, a time at several different nature centers as a naturalist educator. So teaching kids about, you know, the joys of birds and, you know, the seasons and everything else. And that was fun, but my academic, you know, inclinations weren't very well met. And I also sadly realized that I also wasn't going to be able to make a living that way. I came mm -hmm. out of that master's degree with quite a bit of student loan debt and um, realized that the really fun and really important environmental education jobs that were around paid barely more than minimum wage. And that was challenging. It's not how it should be, right? Mm -hmm. Environmental education should be a highly rewarded career, but sadly it's, it's rewarding in non-financial ways only. So I went into something so much more lucrative, right? Anthropology, right? And, you know, most anthropologists will recognize the sort of sarcastic joke there. So I returned to the University of Wisconsin and, you know, really had, uh, you know, the same basic idea in mind, this idea that I was going to understand how people relate to the natural world, um, the human environment relationships, and I guess from there, that's history. That's when I started really becoming an anthropologist was with my uh, PhD training at the University of Wisconsin. If you're interested, I could also tell you the story of how I came to my uh, dissertation field site, but maybe I'll wait and see if that comes up later. Well, I think that's a great transition because uh, my next question is, you know, about your research and you, you do research at multiple sites. So could you tell us a little bit about that and, you know, the people that you conduct research with? 
Definitely. So the first field site um, that I had was Grassy Narrows First Nation, which is in northwestern Ontario, Canada. If you know where Lake of the Woods is or located on the map, it's about an hour and a half um, north of there. Um, so when I began my PhD program, I really didn't have a clear geographical location in mind, right? I had this topic in mind, but I, I didn't know where I was gonna go. I actually initially was interested in working in Latin America. I spoke a little bit of Spanish enough that I knew I could be plopped down somewhere and you know be able to get much better quickly. And a lot of serendipity, I think, intervened in how I went the direction I did. It turned out that the advisor who I was interested in initially working with, who did work in Latin America, was on leave the year that I applied. And another brand new professor um, worked in the Canadian subarctic and picked up my application and thought it looked very interesting. So I became his student. So with that sort of change in direction, one of the things that happened was I became a teaching assistant for a course on Indians of North America or whatever, you know, similar equivalent it was called, right? One of these sort of old, boring, antiquated, but very standard <laughs> course catalog names. Um, I didn't feel particularly qualified to be a teaching assistant, but it did help me a lot to learn um, about that subject. And the more I learned, the more interested I became in the Indigenous peoples of North America. I guess the more I I learned the more I realized I didn't know. Um, so I started taking Ojibwe or Anishinaabe Moen courses, which were offered at the University of Wisconsin. And gradually, by the time, you know, it was time for me to choose my field site, I had, you know, realized or determined that I was going to conduct research somewhere with Anishinaabe people, right? So Anishinaabe people, you know, it's a huge Native nation that spans, you um, the sort of Northern Midwest here in the United States, but also a very large chunk of Canada. I decided to go to Canada because there are funding opportunities that I could get if I crossed the border that I couldn't if I stayed in the United States. So I went to my language teacher and I said, okay, well, you know, what communities do you recommend? Where could I go? So I started going down the list on the internet and it turned out that Grassy Narrows just a couple months before I was doing my search had put up this large scale anti-clear cutting blockade. Um, it was in the news, it was a, you know, it was a pretty exciting thing to, to stumble upon as somebody who is looking for a site, looking to understand how people are coping with and dealing with environmental changes and how that impacts their relationship to the natural world. So right away, I said, well, this is where I've got to go. I called up their deputy chief who was listed as a contact person and, you know, super nervous and said, oh, can I, you know, can I come? I'm really interested. I support what you're doing. I'm a student. And he said, oh, sure. Come on up. You'll love it. Right. So I, I did. And that's how I came to work at Grassy Narrows. From there, um, I've also worked in several other uh, indigenous communities across Canada on shorter term or comparative projects. So I've had a chance to do work in Labrador and Northern Manitoba, Northwest Territories, British Columbia, um, you know, always focusing on the relationship between people and the environment, and especially um, in the early years on the relationship between people and 
logging or forests, and then um, gradually expanding um, into lots of different kinds of extractive industry, right? Things like hydroelectric development. So I've worked in lots of very, you know, beautiful places and have been blessed to see um, some of the most gorgeous uh, country that North America has. I've had a chance to work with First Nations people who really do give me hope for the future and that humanity does have, you know, good in it, right? So I'm often someone who's pretty critical of Western industrial civilization. But when I look around and realize that, hey, there's other ways to do it, right? Um, we have a lot to learn. That does give me hope. I've also worked closer to home as what we call a native anthropologist. Um, so in 2012, I started a project here in Ohio where I teach and live um, to try and understand how people are responding to shale energy development very close to their homes, right? Also known as fracking. And then more recently, I'm working, I guess, even closer to home um, on a movement called the Transition Movement, which is a movement that aims to proactively prepare for climate change and declining fossil fuel availability. I think that is a pretty good summary of all of the places I've, I've worked. Um, a lot of diversity. I work with people who are trying to build a better world, right? So again, and it's an, a, another way that I get my hope and channel it through anthropology. Thanks for sharing that with us. I'm, I mean, it's just a very inspiring set of experiences for the young anthropologists to hear about. And, you know, your most recent work or your most recent book is focused on extractivism. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, the concept of extractivism. How does it differ from other kinds of resource use that we might think of? And then maybe also touch on the activists attempting to resist some of this um, industrial extraction. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in my book, I define extractivism as a mindset and a pattern of resource procurement based on removing as much material as possible for as much profit as possible. So that's different from simple extraction, right? Um, you know, extraction or consumption, right? Those are things that humans, as well as, you know, most other animals, right, do to survive. It's inevitable part of being alive. But when it crosses the line from, you know, doing what we need to do to doing much more, right, um, to taking much more, it becomes extractivism or it becomes overconsumption, right? So I think key to my understanding of extractivism is the notion that it's a lot more than just a way of using the earth and its resources. It's also a way of thinking. It's a very deep, pervasive way of being in the world, right? It's a way of positioning ourselves as humans in relation to the natural or non-human realms that we occupy. And it's one that has proven over time to be profoundly damaging to the planet. And also I think damaging to the fabric of our interrelationships with one another. And as I see it, it's not just an environmental problem. It's also profoundly political, social, cultural, and economic, right? It weaves together a lot of the struggles of our time and focuses on this sort of problematic mindset that we have inherited. So of course, when 
you know, we talk about something like extractivism, right? We're not talking about it in a vacuum that it's moving forward unchallenged, right? So that's what I mean um, when I pronounce the word extractivism, right? The activism part of it is the challenge, right? And it turns out that challenges to extractivist processes, whether they be mining or large scale um, hydroelectric dams or, you know, clear cut logging or many other processes, Right, those challenges come from all over, from local people who have their lives upended when externally imposed resource extraction arrives. So in my book, I talk about lots of um, stories of activists who are fighting against extractivism in their necks of the woods and doing it in lots of different ways. I really love the structure of the book because, you know, each chapter is sort of oriented around different industries. For me, it made it accessible to go right to things that are related to things I know or things I study. But I think maybe one thing you could talk about is, you know, in the introduction to your book, you you definitely set up this sort of dialectic relationship between the extractivists that are sort of in powerful positions to carry out the logic that you described of as much as possible, as fast as possible, and the activists that are sort of resisting this. And I guess the question that came up for me is, as these two groups grapple with each other, what kinds of alternative arrangements could come out of those conflicts and tensions? I mean, the easy answer is, well, there's a thousand alternatives, right? There's lots of different things that could come out of those tensions. It's hard. I mean, just a frank answer is it's hard to be hopeful, Mm -hmm. given the people who control our governments are people who make money based on extractivism and that extractivist mindset put them in the positions that they're in. Right. So why would they want to change? Right. What it's very hard to think that we will get support for building a more sustainable and more resilient world from the top down, right? Hopefully things will get better than they are right now. It's hard to imagine them getting worse. But at the same time, I've gradually over time, you know, given up hope that any real change is going to come from the top down, whether that's our business leaders or, or our political leaders. Instead, as as people, right, as, as humans, as communities, we need to make that change ourselves. Right. So then the next answer to that question would be, well, what that looks like, what the new arrangements and new worlds we create look like are going to depend enormously on the specific context that we find ourselves in. So and that's why we say, well, there's thousands and thousands of alternatives. I think we can find a lot of inspiration in looking at traditional, local, indigenous, right, non-Western ways of being in the world. But, right, those things can't be, you know, appropriated, right? We can learn, but we can't appropriate it. So what we need to do is we need to create new systems and new models for ourselves, right? So that's going to be a long trajectory. In what you were just describing, I'm reminded some of my conversation with Taylor in the last episode where, you know, she really pointed to changes to the medical system are sort of from the bottom up. Um, And you're saying as well, you know, we shouldn't expect that the changes we want to see are going to come from the top down. And so part of that question, though, you know, what makes it challenging, I think, is climate change, environmental, social change, these things that we think about, they happen at multiple scales. They happen 
you know, quickly, but also over long periods of time. And so my question was, you know, as individuals attempting to do something from the bottom up, what can we do to make, you know, our lives more sustainable and more just? I'd love to hear you talk about that. And if there's anything also from your work with uh, the transition movement Mm -hmm. um, as well, I think that'd be very interesting for our listeners from Ohio. The transition movement talks about something called inner transition, which to me as an anthropologist makes a lot of sense, right? It might make a lot of sense to, you know, psychologists and people in other fields as well. But inner transition is basically this notion of accepting and, you know, even grieving for our changing world, recognizing that things are not changing for the better and we are going to have problems going forward, that's inevitable. Um, So from that acceptance, it means coming to terms with that and also finding hope from within and sort of changing your mind, right? Switching, I said earlier that extractivism is a mindset, right? Um, So switching your mindset from an extractivist mindset, a mindset that is about exploiting others, a mindset that is about outdoing your neighbors and having the shiniest truck to a more integrative, healthier relationship with those around you, right? So that comes from within. That's something that's individual, but by extension, it's also cultural. It's at multi-scales, right? So we can think of me making those changes, teaching my own family those kind of changes and raising my kids in this new culture, this new non-extractivist culture. And then gradually, hopefully, that will have a ripple effect through communities as we gradually work to shift the status quo. So as I see it, you know, the the most fundamental thing is about our cultural relationships that we have with the world around us, right? And by the world around us, I mean everything. I mean other humans, right? Other groups of humans, as well as the resources that we use. It's about changing our expectations about what, you know, what we can be proud of, right? About what a good contribution to the world looks like. So anthropologists say all the time, culture is always changing, right? Culture is dynamic. Well, because culture is dynamic, that gives us a lot of openings, a lot of possibility. If culture is always changing, culture can be changed. It can change for the better. So if we posit extractivism as a cultural ailment, Well, it's something that we can fix, right? So that is one thing that gives me hope. I think one thing in anthropology that's given me a lot of hope recently is the idea that as anthropologists, we can show that other ways of life are possible. That might be ways of life that existed in the past. As a cultural anthropologist, that includes other ways of life that exist around us sometimes distant, sometimes not so distant. And I think increasingly I've become interested in the um, ethnography of the future. There may be other lives that we can imagine and we might be able to use anthropology as a tool for creating this better future, right? We often say that we are reflexive beings within our complex system. Well, as reflexive beings, we have a lot of capacities and a lot of special gifts, right? We're able to anticipate how things are going to change. The way I see it, our daily decisions matter, right? Whether that's on our small, tiny scale of, you know, what coffee am I going to buy this morning to the bigger things that we still do every day. Like, how am I going to talk about this situation? How am I going to create a relationship with this person that I'm working with? 
And, you know, gradually I have to hope that those scales will cross. You know, in the final chapter of your book, one thing you begin to talk about are some ways forward. And you mention a lot of these sort of inner transformational kinds of things. But one thing I was really struck by was that we, we have the information to understand what extractivism is doing to the planet. And to meet that, you really have to do whatever it takes to try and make mm -hmm. the change. And so on the one hand, it initially seems kind of daunting because you don't know what needs to be done. But on the other hand, it's this very imaginative, alternative future kind of visioning exercise at the same time that comes down to what kind of life do I want and how could it be different? And you could imagine that in many different ways. I found that really cool and very inspiring. I agree with you that it's daunting. And one reason it's daunting is because it's not just one or two things that need to change. It's everything, mm -hmm. right? Everything needs to change. So where do we begin, right? And again, I, I guess all we can do is look to ourselves and look to our communities. So rather than becoming completely overwhelmed, that's a place where we can find reason for optimism, right? Because that makes the change appear manageable. So that is definitely something that is part of the transition movement, but I, I think lots of other sort of grassroots environmental movements that have recognized that, you know, we are in this thing called the Anthropocene, again, something with many different definitions, something that should have many different definitions, and that our world has changed and that we need to change our place in the world because of that. Um, so transition does talk a ton about the power of the imagination. If anybody is you know, curious, um, I would point them to Rob Hopkins, who's one of the founders of the transition movement and his books, you know, visioning as well as backcasting to figure mm. out how we get to particular visions is important to transition, but I think is also important to anthropology. I increasingly see a lot of overlap. So that's some of the most recent uh, writing that I've been working on is dealing with those overlaps and how we can actually use visioning within anthropology. So one thing you uh, mentioned in one of our SES meetings was that, you know, you were sort of talking about the way that you were seeing relationships between humans, but also just any other being on the planet as being fundamentally a social relationship. Um, and I, you know, I really was struck by that because I had pretty much uttered the same words in, an, in like a reflection for Mark Moritz's class and ethnographic methods. Um, you know, and I immediately thought of braiding sweetgrass and Robin Wall Kimmerer's talking about this reciprocal relationship. If it's a social relationship, we can think about these things like reciprocity with one another, well beyond relationships we have with our friends or family. So what does it mean to you to have a reciprocal relationship with nature or with natural resources as we use them? I think one thing um, to say from the outset is that if we have a social relationship with another being, right, whether it's another human or whether it's a non-human or whether it's even a place, that means that it's automatically a political relationship, right? I, I don't feel that you can have a social relationship without power being involved in some way, shape or form, mm -hmm. right? So that's the interesting thing to think about. 
My use of the phrase reciprocal um, relationship with our natural resources or with the world beyond the human is very much inspired by classic ethnographies um, from the Canadian subarctic. Um, so, you know, classic ethnographies of indigenous peoples who have for thousands of years made their lives um, as hunters. Right. So for them, animals are powerful, sentient beings. So the process of hunting is inevitably the social relationship. It's a relationship based on understanding. And if that cycle is to continue where a human hunter receives an animal and that animal gives its body, it needs to be this relationship of exchange. It needs to be a, a you know, reciprocal relationship where this, there's this mutual give and take. So as we take, we're also expected to give. So my, you know, thinking about, you know, the reciprocity between humans and the natural world very much extends and builds on that insight, right? The sort of recognition that if we think of our relationships to the non-human world as social relationships, we're A, you know, paying respect to that world, right? We're assuming that that world is, is capable and competent and not just there for our use. So I think that is important, right? That's part of this deep inner transition and reframing our understandings of the world. And another thing that we're doing is we are setting ourselves up for, you know, continuing our cycle rather than taking and taking and taking and having that cycle being done. So I think those things are really important. Um, there's probably a lot more, right, other than just what we're talking about here, that could be understood and integrated by thinking about that concept of reciprocity um, and inserting it into ideas of sustainability and resilience and socioecological systems. Hopefully that's something that I'll do or you'll do or someone else will do. <laughs> I think that concept's just so important because as we were just mentioning, you know, when it feels so daunting, reciprocity, I think, is a, a great sort of jumping off point. But to just switch gears just a little bit, you know, you describe yourself as an engaged anthropologist. So I'm curious, you know, what is your vision for an engaged anthropology? And also, how does that influence your research practice? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so again, right, I'm glad you said you like multiple definitions of things because I don't feel that there's any one definition of engaged anthropology. People intersect with that term in lots of different ways. Lots of people pitch their work as engaged anthropology. And I'm definitely not the kind of scholar who's going to say, well, that's not really engaged. Your work doesn't count, right? I don't feel that there's one definition. So for me, in my research, I see engaged anthropology as anthropology that makes a positive difference in the world, a positive difference, hopefully, for the people that we as anthropologists work with, first of all. But also, you know, in my work, I try very, very hard. I hope that I am succeeding, but I have no way of knowing that I'm also making a positive difference in the wider world. Again, I said I set out when I finished school to make a positive difference in the world's environment, right? And I have held fast to that goal for decades now. Um, so that sort of singular goal um, influences everything I do. It influences the choices that I make in my research, right? So I really do have very much of a life mission, 
right? So when I'm considering different project choices or what do I do next, or do I sign on to this, you know, collaboration, I pause and I say, does this promote a better relationship between humans and nature? Does it break down the nature culture dualism in a way that is going to get people to act better, right? If the answer is yes, I do it. If the answer is no, well, I usually don't do it, but every now and then I say yes. You know, increasingly I see myself as, you know, sort of giving up the separation between the work that I do and my own private life, right? Me trying to be a fulfilled person, me doing community activist work and the work that I do as a scholar, right? So increasingly I've collapsed that boundary between work and life Hopefully it will end up being in a healthy, productive and fulfilling way. I think a lot of the reasons I'm able to say something like that is because I now have tenure and am secure in my position and have that kind of academic freedom to be able to, to do that. Um, but I also think more broadly, and when I look around at anthropology and how it's changed since I've been in the field, I do feel like there is increasing acceptance of breaking down the barriers between academic and applied ways of doing anthropology. I think increasingly there's this understanding that scholars are not going to divorce their lives and their personal interests from the work that they do. So I see a lot of my work uh, promoting that. I see now as I mature as an anthropologist, one of my roles to be to try and change the discipline to increasingly permit those possibilities for younger scholars, right? So that maybe for someone's dissertation, they could actually do work that is truly engaged and seeks to make a positive difference rather than merely bringing in, you know, grant funding and checking a variety of boxes. This divide between applied and academic is not only an important thing to reflect on, but it's also been like a hot topic that people are talking about more. I've been thinking about this sort of Marxist idea of alienation that comes about in very specialized role as an academic focusing on a particular topic. And I'm struck by your description of sort of dissolving things, things together um, and how that might not only have a positive you know, effect on the communities that you're in, but it also really dissolves that sort of alienated feeling of like, well, I'm here at work as an academic, um, but that's my academic life. And I have this other personal mm -hmm. life that has to remain separate. And it just seems so fulfilling to bring those things together. And I think I agree that over time, you know, hopefully as the push continues to do that, um, we'll see some of the structural barriers to that kind of work, you know, falling away. Yeah, I've never been interested and in, I've never been willing to, you know, work in a bullshit job, right, that didn't have meaning to me. So I did work very hard and I did sacrifice um, some things to be able to get to that point. But at the same time, I do recognize it is a privilege, right? So for me to be a professor who has enough academic security and enough personal security in her life to be able to um, say something like that is something that I'm, I'm very grateful for. And I do recognize that the vast majority of citizens don't have mm -hmm. that option. One thing I've been reading about lately is um, Nautopians, 
I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's uh, Chris Carlson's work, but it's, you know, simple groups of people who, who basically say, okay, what I do for my work, right? Maybe I work at a call center. I do that to pay my bills, but that does not define me. That's not who I am. And instead I'm going to do unpaid work that is going to define me. I'm going to be a vacant lot gardener, or I'm going to um, produce, you know, software for free, something that's meaningful that is absolutely stepping outside the constraints of the class system and stepping outside that idea that we're defined by our occupational identities. Um, so that's, that's fun stuff to read that I've been reading lately. And yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage everyone to strive for that, right? But I also recognize the privilege and the fact that it's hard to, to make it a realistic possibility in all cases. When you described your origin story as an anthropologist, there was definitely a lot of intentionality in where you were going to study, what you were going to study, all of these things. So I think it'd be great to hear from you what kinds of advice you might have for our listeners um, who are maybe interested in anthropology or are interested in pursuing careers um, or degrees in anthropological and environmental research. My advice would be follow your passion. I know that's cheesy and often repeated, but I think it's really important. Find what that passion is and never lose sight of or sacrifice your big goals. It is kind of interesting, and I don't know if it's a good thing to think about the fact that I picked that goal and I've stuck to it come hell or high water, but I was never willing to sacrifice the big picture goal that I had about making a positive impact on the world's environment by creating a better understanding of human relationships to the non-human world. I will say though that, you know, we need to be adaptable in the specifics, right? So you don't sacrifice your big goal, but questions like how will you get there? Um, where will you actually work? What will you do to survive? Those are things that I would encourage people to be uh, a bit more adaptable in. So if you have one big goal that you want to accomplish, well, have lots of paths to get there because that greatly increases the chance that you'll be able to get there. So you might be interested in studying anthropology. You might be interested in getting your PhD in anthropology as a means to an end. That's great. But if you think that getting an academic job at a certain type of institution is your ultimate goal, that's something that's going to be a lot more challenging, right? If something like, you know, creating social justice in the prison system is your ultimate goal, then that opens up multiple avenues that you might be able to get there, whether you're working in the private sector or nonprofit sector, or actually even working in industry somehow. So I would say be flexible about where you work and about how you achieve your goals, but stick tight to your goals. That's great advice, especially considering that there's a lot of pressure to be very specialized and focused in what you do and how you do it. But here we are in a job market or just a society in general that is pretty uncertain in what you're going to be able to do. And so that advice to have many paths and to be flexible of like how you get there, I think is really, really important for the future we're coming into. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I feel for um, young people right now who are in anthropology or any other field because the job market is really tough. The job market was tough when I graduated. I actually got my PhD in 2008, but it's not always easy on a personal level, but don't give up and you'll get there. Thank you very much for joining me here today, Dr. Willow. It's been really great to hear the story of your work and your passions and how you've studied them and the path you've taken, paths rather. So I know for uh, students at um, Ohio State and probably those that are sort of linked up through the interlibrary systems, they can get access to your book online to read. Um, Are there any other best sort of sources if people want to um, read some of your work? So I do have a couple edited volumes um, that I'm sure are in the library system as well. Um, So in 2017, I co-edited a volume called Extraction, published by Routledge. There's a lot of background on that concept of extractivism, Mm -hmm. actually, in a lot of ways. My 2018 book was sort of inspired by the, Mm. the push that we collectively did in that earlier volume. And then more recently, um, actually just this year in 2020, um, another volume came out called Anthropology and Activism Mm. that was co-edited by OSU's very own uh, Kelly Yodeving, who graduated the past year. You know, we worked together to pull together a lot of, you know, sort of new perspectives on the relationship between anthropology and activism. So I think many listeners might be interested in that. Other than that, if you're interested in learning more about my work, I would say reach out to me. I know not everybody in the world has institutional subscriptions to every journal that's out there, but if you email me, um, my email is easy to find. I will be happy to share anything that I can with you. And I'm also happy to recommend sources um, that go outside of things that I've written or worked on as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much for sharing that. And thanks again for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you here and talk about your career and uh, the work that you do. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, before we wrap up, you know, as always, this podcast is hosted in collaboration with the Ohio State Anthropology Department's Anthropology Public Outreach Program, known as APOP for short, um, but also with support from the American Anthropological Association. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a comment on Instagram or post a review to help make it easier for other people to find these episodes. To learn more about anthropology and this podcast, follow at A Story of Us OSU on Instagram or follow our APOP account, which is at Ohio State APOP. Um, If you have any comments or suggestions, you can head over to our the APOP webpage. Um, There's a form there where you can send us whatever it is that you have to say. So thank you again to everyone listening to A Story of Us.